Let us pray. Our most gracious and holy God, draw near and fill our hearts with your presence. Grant to us renewal that we might continually hope in your promises that you have given to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And so here we are once more at the beginning of a new year. It is the new year for us Anglicans and so many others who follow the church calendar. It's a new beginning. A new moment in our lives. In a way, we've gone through the beginning of the end last week in order to begin at the end once more. As we reflect on the coming of Christ, as we reflect on the coming of God, we have this opportunity to reflect on our very lives as Christians, to draw nearer to Christ in our contemplation, to draw nearer to Christ in preparation. After all, what Jesus just said, we don't know the day or the hour. And so he says to stay awake, and that's part of what this season is about, is learning to stay awake, learning to be prepared in our heart and our mind and our bodies, to be doing what the Lord has called us to do. But this year has been a hard one for all of us. It's been a struggle. It's been a year of things unexpectedly happening. We've had seven, eight months now of pandemic life, you might say, of shutdowns, of closures, of stay-at-home orders, of masking orders. We've been living in a time of great anxiety and fear. And so I think it's good that we are coming now back around to a new year, to a new start, to a new place to step back to set aside those things that are distracting us and to draw back toward Jesus, to draw back into the one who is our hope because he is the very promise of God. God has given his people so many promises throughout scripture and they are all culminating in the man Jesus, in his coming in the flesh for us. And this time is a time for us to draw back to that singular truth that God's greatest promise is to come in the flesh for us, to become incarnate, and to come down from heaven. It's not exactly the picture that Isaiah had here, I don't think, in here in chapter 64. In his prayer that he is praying as a continuation from chapter 63, Isaiah is praying a prayer about God coming to restore his people. And in restoring his people to judge evil, to judge wickedness, to judge the nations of the world that have come against God's people, come against Israel. The adversaries have trampled down God's sanctuary. And Israel has become, as he says in verse 19 of chapter 63, that Israel has become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name, admitting that Israel has become wayward. And that's where we come in today. And the thing I want us to walk away with as we walk through this chapter 64 is to realize that only in our comprehending 
of what God's rending of the heavens will mean is there a hope for amending in our own lives now. Only in our comprehending what God's rending of the heavens will mean is there a hope for mending in our lives now. And that brings us to the rending that we hear about in verses 1 through 4. Let me read those for us again. Oh, that you, O Yahweh, would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You see, Isaiah here is recalling that picture of Yahweh coming down on Mount Sinai. Do you remember that picture? Do you remember how those dark clouds surrounded Sinai? How there was lightnings and thunders and a great fire up on top of the mountain as God came down to dwell with his people. He came down to give to them his covenant, to give to them his promise that he would be their God and that they would be his people. In that time, God, in a way, did rend the heavens and come down. And Isaiah is picturing that same event again, crying out and praying for a rending of the heavens, that Yahweh would come down, that the mountains would quake, that the people would quake, that Yahweh would make known his name to all of his adversaries, that the nations would tremble at his presence. You see, that's what it's going to be like at the end. God will one day rend the heavens completely. He'll split them wide open as Jesus returns to this earth, as he steps foot back upon this earth in his human form, in his human flesh that he is carried into heaven in his, in his ascension. And the heavens will be rended in such a way that heaven and earth will slam together, that all eyes will be open to the reality that heaven isn't some other place so far, far away, but is right next door. That it runs alongside our reality. That the spiritual and the physical will be fully known to one another. But that rending comes at a cost. When God rends the heavens, there will be no longer opportunity for repentance. There will no longer be opportunity to turn to the Lord. For all things will be done. All things will be complete when Yahweh reveals himself in Christ at the end. When reality itself is rended and all things are made new. Judgment will come after that. In the midst of that rending, Isaiah says that, he, that Yahweh had done awesome things of old. The mountains quaked. And that no one has ever heard or perceived the works of God. A God who acts for those who wait for him. You see, Isaiah sees here a group of people who are waiting patiently for God. Waiting for him to return. Waiting for him to fulfill and complete his promises. To bring the people out of exile. To bring them out of those places that he has scattered them. And contemplating that rending brings Isaiah to a place of comprehending something he hadn't thought about fully. 
You see, in verse 5, he says, You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. It's almost like in saying that in his prayer, he suddenly turns and says, Behold, you are angry, and we sinned. It could also be said, Behold, you are angry, therefore we sinned, or because we sinned. Our sin is what leads to God's wrath. It leads to his anger, and Isaiah is comprehending this suddenly in light of desiring God to rend the heavens and come down. He comprehends the sinfulness that he has, that God's people have. None of them are righteous. None of them are joyfully working righteousness. None of them are remembering God and his ways. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? They've been sitting in their sins. They have been sitting with a sense that God has abandoned them. They've been sitting with a sense that God has not forgiven them, and how can they be saved? Because Isaiah is realizing that the righteous one doesn't need saving. It is the sinful one who needs saving. It is the one who is full of sin that needs God to come down, not to rend the heavens and make the mountains quake, but to come down and bring forgiveness, to bring mercy. Isaiah is comprehending this in the midst of that rending, that for God's people to survive, they have to recognize their sin. For God's people to come through that time, they have to see the sin that is in them so that they can turn and be saved. Isaiah continues his prayer in verse 6 with this confession, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Isaiah comes around to a full confession for the people, saying that they have become like one who is unclean. Uncleanness taking on a moral component here. In the Levitical law, in the holiness laws, uncleanness wasn't a sin per se in the same way that breaking the moral law was. Uncleanness was something that happens to you as part of living in this world, as part of the fallenness of this world. And to be unclean is to be temporarily cut off from God's presence, to be cut off from the temple until you'd performed whatever rites were required after your time of uncleanness. But here it takes on a moral quality. To be unclean is to be completely and totally cut off from God's presence. That even in their uncleanness, Everything is polluted. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All the good works that the people could do could never overcome the sinfulness within, could never un overcome the uncleanness that they have. And he says that they fade like a leaf and that their iniquities like the wind take us away. We get what it means to fade like a leaf. We've just come through the season of fall. We've watched the leaves turn and watched them fall to the ground and become brittle and broken to become nothingness. The leaves fade and they're carried away by the wind just as our iniquities will carry us away. When we focus in on our sins and pursue sin, 
Sin drags us away from the promises of God. They drag us away from who God is and what he is desiring to do. For Isaiah cannot come before the Lord without the Lord having come to Isaiah first. And that is where we are. We are in a place where the Lord has come to us and called us by his name and called us to himself in order that we might turn from our sins, in order that we might recognize and comprehend just the level and the depth of the sins that is in us. Sin so great that without the Lord coming to us first, none of us would call on his name. None of us would rouse ourselves and take hold of him. His face would remain hidden and we would melt in our iniquities. We would melt in the hand of our sins. For God's people to comprehend that is to recognize what they truly need. What they truly need is not necessarily God to come in righteous judgment against all the nations because God's people have become all the nations. God's people have become scattered and become like the nations. Like he said in verse 19 of the previous chapter, we are like those who are not called by your name. Such is the sinfulness that has occurred in the people's lives. Such is their waywardness. Such is the reason for Babylon to come in and destroy the temple and to destroy Jerusalem and to carry the people away. Isaiah comprehends his sin and the people's sin. And so what does he do? He confesses it. He admits it. He tells God that he is a sinner. He tells him that without God, he would never pursue God. Without Yahweh coming down and revealing himself, he would never turn to Yahweh. And in comprehending all of that, he cries out for a mending to come. He says in verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. The mending is coming, Isaiah sees. The Lord is their Father. The Lord is the one who will shape them, who will mold them, who will put them upon that potter's wheel and spin them around. And take them from just being a useless lump. And will turn them into a beautiful pot that he can use for his glory. We are the clay and you are the potter. God is in control and leading and guiding us. He is shaping us and molding us for his use. That we are the work of his hand. That is what it means to enter into the mending that is occurring here. Is to receive God's healing, to take that brokenness, that uselessness of our lump of clay of sin, and to have that impurity taken out of us as we are reshaped into who God desires us to be. People like to say, God don't make anything that's broken. The problem is, God didn't make us broken to begin with, but we broke ourselves. We turned to sin. After creation was accomplished, after God made Adam and Eve, they turned to sin, and their sin spread through all of us, such that we are born in a state of sin. We are born in a place of not knowing God. But then he lays hold of us, and he reshapes us, and he molds us, because he is the potter who is in charge of us, and he is working us that we would become the work of his hands. And so as we see in that mending we can cry out, be not so terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not our iniquity forever. 
because we are God's people and he is fulfilling his promise. And that's what our hope rests in, is that comprehending God's rending of the heavens, that we have a hope for mending in our own lives. As we look at that final judgment that is to come, it can drive us to reflect on our own need for healing. On the recognition that without the Lord working in us, we are like the nations that will be judged. We are like the nations that will be washed away. We are like the nations that will be destroyed. Which will come when God rends the heavens at the end. And so we cry out, be not terribly angry, O Lord. Remember not our iniquities forever. What does God do in light of Isaiah's cry? He sends his son. God fulfills his plan and his purpose. He sends his son into this very world to be the offering, and that's how he chooses to not be angry at us anymore. Our sins, yes, are to be judged. They are rightfully to be judged because God is a righteous and holy God who is the judge of all things. He is the judge of the earth, and there is none who can be possibly righteous before him except for Jesus, his son. And it's only through Jesus that we can ask God to remain. Only through Jesus can we ask God to not remain rightly angry at our sins. And this Jesus is God himself, as I've said. It is God in the flesh, the Son of God from eternity past, who has always been God alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Son takes on flesh for us, and he comes down at the end. He comes down at Christmas for us, when we in a few weeks can celebrate and rejoice and have that feast day and that feast season to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And that is where our hope lies, is looking toward that event of Jesus being born on this earth. But doubly looking toward the end as we confess our sins and pray for that ultimate mending to come, for all things to be healed, for all things to be made new. And that's what happens when Jesus comes back. For those of us who have comprehended what it means for God to rend the heavens, we can rejoice in his rending the heavens because that will bring healing. And between now and then we can pray for God to be at work through his people to bring all of his elect from the four corners of the earth to reach out and to call all of his people back to himself, to call all of his people to Jesus. And so we look forward and hope to God's promise. We look forward hoping in God fulfilling that promise that is ultimately in Jesus. That is how God becomes our God and makes us his people is through Jesus. And that is how he removes our sin, how he is able to forget our iniquities, how he can look at his people in compassion and mercy to turn us from our sins. He will remold us as he desires us to be. And as we give in and receive the great promise of hope and salvation based on his promises, we will be changed into the pottery that he wants us to be. We receive what he has done and that is to give us Jesus, to send Jesus back to us, 
to renew all of creation. And so let us now, may we all draw near in hope of those promises being fulfilled. That we know nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born into this world. And we know that at some point, he will return. And so we stay awake in hope for that return, recognizing what he has done in us, turning to him always for his mercy and his compassion, knowing that he is our God and that we are his people. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.